Welcome to the All About You podcast. I just wanted to say that the following podcast with Chris is his very personal account of his treatment after being diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. I feel very honoured that Chris wanted to tell his story and his very generous offer to talk with others and their families if faced with the many decisions that Chris had to make. Chris is a very remarkable man with a remarkable story, which I feel very privileged to share with you now. Welcome to the All About You podcast. My guest today is Chris, and we are talking about his experiences of acute myeloid leukemia. So, Chris, welcome to the All About You podcast. Thank you, Sheila. I don't actually know where to start with this podcast, so let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Okay, so how did this journey of yours, for want of a better word, start? Okay. In December 2008, I was living in Asia and running Asia for, uh, for Cambridge University Press. And I went back to the UK for a board meeting and I thought, oh, I'll have my executive medical checkup. So I went off to one of the Nuffield hospitals in, uh, in Ipswich and had the checkup. And I got home and it was three days before Christmas and the doctors called and said, from Ipswich and said, um, there's something wrong. Either your, our blood test results are contaminated or there's something serious. Please go and have another blood test and send us the results. And so I went down had a blood test, looked at it and thought, oh, because at the time, my wife's niece was being treated for AML, acute myeloid leukemia. From the blood test, I could see that I'd probably got it as well. So it was just before Christmas and we decided, because we had two youngish kids, we would not say anything until after Christmas. So in the new year, I went to the local hospital, who I was told was one of the best hematologists in, in the Philippines, and he attempted to do a bone marrow um, extraction. And after 20 minutes of trying to drill into my hip bone, uh, he gave up. Okay, <laughs> he couldn't get in. But he looked at the results as well and said, well, yes, maybe, well, let's see how it goes. And so for the next sort of five or six months, I was getting all these minor infections. Um, you know, I had a cold, I had a cough. I was constantly slightly ill. So I knew my immune system was depressed. And then in June of 2009, a friend of mine who is a very senior doctor in Hong Kong put together a team of specialists, put me in hospital, and they tested me for everything. I mean, HIV, they did a bone marrow extraction from my hip. They looked at all possible things, all sort of rare diseases, etc. And they came back and just said, it's myeloid displacement syndrome. MDS and AML, if you have less than 20% uh, immature blood cells in your blood, it's MDS. If you have more than 20%, it's AML. So I had MDS. And I'm lying there in Hong Kong Sanatorium, and my friend is calling the health minister of Hong Kong and saying, who's the best hematologist? 
And two days later, I was in another hospital being treated or being seen by this doctor, looking at my results. And what he said was, if we don't start treatment right now, you'll be dead in three months. And he said, well, tomorrow's a public holiday, so go home and we'll see you in two days' time. Um, and we have to do an operation to insert a Hickman line, which is a basically two tubes in one with a red and a white end. And they put it into a vein and the other end goes to just outside your heart, where the vein wall is the thickest. So the chemotherapy burns the, the veins, basically, is not going to burn right through the vein. So I went back to my friend's flat where I was staying and my wife was there and I just broke down cried and cried and cried and you know you have a choice then do you do the treatment which you know is going to be really rough or do you give up I thought well, I can't give up I have two young kids so I go into hospital and they attempt to put in a Hickman line turns out my veins are weird and they couldn't find the, they couldn't get through the vein they wanted to get through so they did a second operation because the first one you're awake they're just doing it under local and you can hear all this this conversations going on a mixture of Cantonese and, and English um, and they're telling me you know okay just be a few more minutes oh no actually we're going to give up because we'll try again in a couple of days so that's what they did and they got the Hickman line in place and I started treatment and the first treatment is seven days. You get seven days of one particular chemo drug. And then in the middle of those seven days, you get five days of a different one. It's called a seven plus five. And it's really lethal stuff. And at the end of it, I was telling the doctors and the nurses where the Hickman line is going into my chest. It feels sore. And they went, nah, it's okay. And then a couple of days later, because I've got no immune system. All this chemo has destroyed my immune system. So a couple of days later, they decide that, yes, I've got a fever, and a doctor stands there, and he just grabs the Hickman line, and he rips it out. I mean, he just pulls it out, and they stop the bleeding. Now they've got basically no way of treating me without shoving stuff into a vein in my arm. And I spend seven days of which I have very few memories in a high fever, alternating between shivering under several blankets and sweating profusely. And at one stage at 3am in the morning, they called my wife, who was staying with a friend a few minutes away, and they said, you better come here. Oh, my God. I have no idea, although you have described this journey, being in that hospital and having the problems with trying to insert the line, trying to get the bone marrow from your hip. I mean, your body seems to be incredibly tough in that respect. But yeah. going through this, as you say, the call to your wife. Well, I had no idea. You know, she came up. Um, they called my friend, the doctor. I remember him giving me a bed bath because the sheets were soaked, my pyjamas were soaked through. And then I remember, now this is August. Beginning of August is when all the trainees come in, the newly qualified doctors. And you get a, a statistically significant spike in deaths in hospitals in August. 
<laughs> we shouldn't laugh, but it's you quite funny laugh. when you no. look at it that yeah, way. Yeah. I, I, I'm sort of lucky in that I have these, uh, this guy in Hong Kong, who is the guy who worked out how SARS was being spread in buildings, and another doctor who was a senior surgeon. And so I knew with these guys, they told me what to expect. So I survived. So I survived the first week, and then you get a month of all your hair falls out. I mean, every single hair follicle on your body falls out. And then they put another Hickman line into me, and they gave me another 7 plus 5, and this time that was fine. I survived that. The only thing about this hospital was the food is awful. I have to have very well-cooked food. I've got this rather like COVID. You get no sense of taste. Everything tastes metallic. And so... Friends would bring me curries and very spicy stews just so that I could taste what I was eating. So you could just taste something. I could just yeah. taste something because the, the hospital food would come in. This is a public hospital in Hong Kong, so food is not the best. And I just look at this food and feel sick. And then my friends would come in with rice and, you know, a curry or something. And, and they basically kept me going. And they would sit with me because, you know, my wife's looking after the kids. She's gone back home. Okay, so we get onto the five plus threes. Those are quite easy. Um, and at that stage, in between the bounce of chemotherapy, I'm going down to a cancer, a cancer rehabilitation clinic to do my recovery. And every couple of days, I get taken back to the hospital and they test my, for my white blood system to see if my immune system is growing again. And that's quite fun because you have to give yourself injections to stimulate white blood cell growth which means pinching a bit of your stomach, shoving a needle in. And that takes a little bit of intestinal fortitude to get start doing that. And friends would visit me. One guy came down and said, do you need anything? I said, yeah, could you do my laundry? So he takes away my laundry, gets his helper to do it at home, brings it back and leaves. <laughs> he left it on the bus. So then he had to go and buy me some clean underwear and Anyway, we're still friends. <laughs> glad to hear it, glad yeah. to hear it. So, all I had said to the doctors, I want to be home for Christmas. I want to spend Christmas at home, because now they're talking about a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant, and they are looking for donors. Both my brothers in the UK are tested. They're not a match. And they find a donor in Australia. And so they're saying, okay, we're going to go through all of this, and in January, if you're strong enough, we'll start the transplant. And so everything's geared up. And I go to Hong Kong in January. And they say, well, you know, we've been thinking about this. And you're in remission. Basically, you've been in remission since the first treatment. And the others have just helped. So it's your choice if you want to do the transplant now. And I was sort of relieved because I didn't think psychologically that I could do the transplant although it's a very good unit they do 140 a year and so they've got a lot of experience because when you're at this level the medicine and the doctors treating you it's more art than science because they're tailoring things to you to how you're reacting you know it's your choice do you want the transplant or not this is early 2010 I'm 59, and I know that their cutoff limit for age for transplants is 60. So I get them to put in writing that they will treat me up to 62 if I relapse, if it comes back. 
So okay, so I go home. Uh, in March I start work again, travelling around. And in December 2010, I had a 60th birthday party, 120 people from about 15 countries. In December, my wife goes in for a routine endoscopy, colonoscopy, and I decide, oh, I'll get a blood test just to see, because I feel fine. And I look at the blood test results and I think, it's back. And I send the results to uh, Hong Kong and they say, yeah, it's back. So in January, up to Hong Kong again. And what they do is they put me on a maintenance treatment, which is very low-dose chemo. Of course, they put another Hickman line in. Actually, this time my mate does it because it's the third one. And he puts it in, it comes out right in the middle of my chest, which is a really weird place, but actually works out pretty well. Now, that's something about Hickman lines. You want to have a shower. You, if the Hickman line is coming out of your shoulder, you wrap a plastic bag around the ends and seal it with a rubber band and you hang it from your ear while you're having a shower because you've got to keep it upright. So that's weird. So that... I'm not in hospital, this is outpatient treatment, um, which continues in the Philippines. And then one day I get a high fever and I go into hospital in, in, in Manila and I actually sent a message because I was due to attend a board meeting that evening. And I said, sorry, I won't be able to attend. Going back into hospital, I think this is a bad one. And while I'm in hospital, Fukushima happens, and I am almost dead. Uh, the doctors uh, do not know what's going on. They don't know what a Hickman line is because they're all American trained. Um, so they put a port in me and they're putting treatment into me. And because Fukushima's going on, all the air ambulances are evacuating people from Japan. And I'm in an induced coma by now. This is what my wife and my boss tell me. It was a juggling act of trying to get an air ambulance and a bed in an ICU in hospital where this my hematologist is now head of medicine. And eventually the th two things align and they fly me to Hong Kong and I go into the ICU. I, I'm in a coma. For any time in a private jet, and I'm in a coma. Sod, sod's law, I guess. Uh, so I'm in this coma. Um, and I'm starting to, they're starting to bring me out of it in Hong Kong. Now, these guys know what they're doing. And it's weird because you're in a semi-drugged state. And out of the window, I realized later, I can see the Hong Kong race course, uh, the one on Hong Kong, in Happy Valley, not the one in Shaanxian. And I think this is a Roman Colosseum, right? That's what my brain is. Yeah, because you know, all the drugs, yeah. Drugs, yeah. And... The ICU nurses, I think, for some reason, I think they're all wearing like leopard skin with cat hats with ears. Very strange. And there's this big black bird perched outside um, my window, which later I realise is a crane. Wow, so, so mind games definitely mind games going definitely on. definitely going on. And actually, I come out of the coma and people start visiting me and they do, we start putting a plan together and they say, well, um, we've got you stabilized. I can't walk. I've lost all my muscles have deteriorated to the extent where I can't even pick up a toothbrush. I can't walk. So I'm starting to have a lot of physio 
there's still fluid in my lungs. So a guy comes in every day and sticks a tube down my nose into my lungs and suctions out, which is... Not a pleasant experience, I should A very think. unpleasant mm. experience. Turns out that Hong Kong now won't give me a transplant because they say they've got other people with better survival rates. Because, you know, I'm pretty weak. I'm regaining my strength. But my, my doctor talks to a, a friend of his at a medical conference. This friend is an associate professor at Sing in Singapore, um, and he basically manages the transplant unit there, and he agrees to take me. And so they start looking for a donor, and I spend eight months living in Hong Kong hospital, and I get my strength back. And I'm doing things like going down to the yacht club for lunch and meeting friends, and it's perfectly normal life, except I have to go back to hospital by six o'clock to have my meds. And I'm getting chemo once a month, still. And it's the stuff that goes through the brain blood barrier, um, because chemo cells can hide in the spinal cord, and in the fluid, and so they're trying to make sure they get it and just keep things under control while they find me a donor. And they find me a donor, and so we prepare to go to Singapore. One of the things that can cause AML is a mutation of a couple of genes, one of which is called FLT3. Now, the first time I was in treatment, FLT3 was normal, and the second time it's mutated. So they give me a drug, which is a liver cancer drug called serafinib, which can flip the gene back to normal. And at one stage they tell me, oh, you now hold the record for tolerance of this drug in Hong Kong. I, I don't know why my body seems to be really tough. So I go to Singapore and they assess me and they say, yeah, you've got a 30% chance of dying during the treatment. Okay, that gives me a 70% chance of survival. Yeah, flipping it on its head, yeah. So I, um, they say, oh, you've got to stop the serafinib. We need a week clear of that so it doesn't interfere with what we're going to do to you. I say, okay. And a week later, I go back into the Singapore hospital. And I walk into a room and I think, hmm, there's only two ways I'm coming out of this, either in a wheelchair or in a box. And as I go into my room, across the room, another guy is being checked in. Basically, they're going to start treatment in two days. They're still doing a few tests. And the next day, I look across, and the room is empty. And I said to the nurse, what happened to the guy who was checking? He said, oh, he decided he couldn't take it. He's going to go home. He was from Sri Lanka. And so they start the treatment, which is basically they are going to give me five days of the most vicious chemotherapy. And this is designed to kill my entire immune system. And it's so bad, this stuff, that my wife, who's been sleeping in the room with, in the same room, on a uh, little bed, she's told to leave the room while they do it. And the nurse is in full hazmat. And this is stuff they're putting into my veins. Okay? So five days of this. The food's better, but it's still not good in this hospital. At least I get a choice of Indian, European, or Chinese. This is... This hospital is Singapore General, a great place. Got nothing but praise for those guys. And so after five days, they say, yeah, okay, going to let you rest for a day. They bring in this bag of straw-coloured liquid, and they hang it up and put it into me. And that's it. 
Chris, you are being incredibly brave doing this podcast. I feel incredibly honoured that you are choosing to share your story. And I just cannot believe what you have said about the treatment, the difficulties with the treatment, going through the treatment. On so many levels, your resilience, as in making the decision to go ahead, is just incredible. I'm sure an awful lot of people would have said no, 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 way earlier than going through the various steps. Yeah, the transplant happened on December 15th, 2011. And the doctor said... Every day we're going to test you to see what, if you have any white blood cells. And it'll take 15 to 16 days. I mean, those days must have felt like every day felt like a lifetime. Yeah, because they're doing a, they had a chart up on the wall and every day they're plotting it. But when they said 15 to 16 days, I said, no, it's going to happen. I'm just... You must... I, thought, I thought I could get through this because it's been so long. I'm a Christian, and I said it would happen on Christmas Day. It did. So your belief got you through. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Christmas Day, there's a little uptick, and what they need is three days of upticks. And next Boxing Day, there's a bit more. 27th, there's a bit more. And we know that it's taken. And we know that. And now, you know, after a few days, they start giving me drugs. Because this is an American's immune system. And it is going to attack my body when it gets strong. So they put me on a drug called cyclosporin, which um, suppresses the immune system. And what they then have to do, and also on other drugs like biotics, antivirals, because the immune system is still weak and they're keeping it suppressed. And what they're also looking for is what's called graft-versus-host disease, where the immune system does attack the body. And it usually manifests in the eyes, on the skin, and in the gut. Middle of January, I'm discharged. And I go to live in a one-bedroom flat in Singapore. And the idea is, first couple of weeks, I'm going to go back into the hospital twice a week for blood tests. And so they adjust the drugs, etc. And then gradually the interval between going to the hospital will lengthen. And so I go home and yeah, I get GVHD, I get it on my skin. And they say, oh, well, it's Chinese New Year this weekend. You better come back in because if you turn off at A&E, they won't know what to do. So it's better that you're back in hospital. So back I go. Same room, um, just for a few days, and they tr- they increase the cyclosporine, everything calms down, and um, I go back out to this flat, which is in Bukit Timah. It's either my wife or a friend or a helper from Hong Kong, from Manila, who is looking after me. All the food you have to eat is has to be 
well cooked. I mean, boiled to extinction, cooked to extinction. If you if I have a piece of bread, it has to come out of a packet that's freshly opened. After one hour, I can't eat anything from that packet. Same with biscuits. It is the most boring diet in the world. Um, every day I have to monitor my blood pressure three or four times a day because of increase in blood pressure. I've got to go straight back into hospital. And I go into the hospital and they take blood and I have to sit around while I analyze the blood in case they need to do anything else. And one time, yeah, they say, are you feeling tired? I said, yeah, I've been a bit tired. They say, yeah, your, um, your blood count's very low, so we're going to top you up. And so they do that. But I've been, and after six months, well, June, they say in late May, they say, yeah, we're, you're almost ready to go home. And I think, okay, fine. And we book a flight, June the 8th. And on the morning of June the 7th, I go back in for my final test. And they don't keep me waiting around. They say, go home. And I'm home and they call me and they say, these blood tests are really weird. We don't know what's going on. Um, come back in, we'll do another test. And you can imagine how you feel. You're thinking, oh, you just, I'm going home. So close to so that close. point. You just cannot believe that something is going wrong right at the end. But I go back in and I have the blood test and it's normal. So I fly home to Manila. And then every month I have to fly to Singapore uh, for tests and they adjust the levels of the drugs. I then switch late 2012 and I start going back to Hong Kong for the checkups. And during this period you get... I guess you could, it's a form of PTSD. The experience of the transplant is so traumatic. Um, knowing that you could die from the treatment, knowing that afterwards you could suffer from almost life-threatening graft-versus-host disease, which a lot of people do. And yet, I have had very, very few GVHD incidents. In fact, I talked to a, a hematologist, a private hematologist here in Valencia, which is the principal transplant center for Spain. And he just said, you are incredibly lucky because I have so few, well, I have almost zero side effects. But I couldn't go back to work after this. It was so traumatic. And my boss flew to Singapore and we had dinner and we agreed a, a severance. And they were very generous. They looked after me all the way through. And since then, I've done some consulting work and I've ran the British Chamber of Commerce for a year. But then I decided that's it. But I've, all the time we were doing this, we had a blog going. The subtitle of the blog is uh, Pain is Inevitable, but Suffering is Optional. That is incredibly powerful. Was the blog to keep your family and friends up to date with what was going on or was this a bit like a personal journal as such. It was really a day-to-day -day report. But in Singapore, we started the blog. And if I was too weak, uh, my wife would write the entry. The blog was an informative blog just to, you know, just to update people. But later, after we stopped, um, I got people contacting me from around the world who had relatives who had been diagnosed, um, just asking for information. I had people, friends in Manila, refer, you know, who had 
knew of other people who had this diagnosis of AML or something like it, like a, a lymphoma. And they would put them in touch with me and I would talk to them. My doctor friend in Hong Kong actually forgot to say this while I was being treated there. If he had other patients who was being treated, he would ask me to talk to them to try and help them understand um, what was going to happen, what it was going to be like. And I think, I hope it was useful for them, it was certainly useful for me. It's one of those things where the only people who really understand what you're going through is people who have gone through it or, or are going through it. And I sometimes think that it's harder for your family than it is for you. Because all you have to do is basically get through it. For them, they have to think about what happens I think there are so many things here because we never want to watch the people we love and care about suffer, go through this incredibly aggressive treatment and all we can do is be there for them, offering support, our time, whatever we can do. So it's very different for both of you, sort of you going through the treatment, but obviously your family, and as you said, you've got children. Thinking about what could happen is each stage has got lots of risk. Each stage is very different, and it seemed to have got more aggressive as you went through the treatment. Yeah, it's... Um... One thing that really surprised me was how strong my wife was. Because she's very frail physically. She's um, asthmatic all her life. Um, she has weak lungs. And, um, but she moved heaven and earth to get me out of Manila and into Hong Kong. And she made sure that... Um, I was where if she couldn't be with me because she had to look after the kids, she made sure there were people there who, who would look after me. And she rallied this support group. You know, my boss flew from England and the insurance company were refusing to pay for the air ambulance because the doctors in Manila were saying, oh, we can treat him, we can treat him. So he paid for it. I mean, that's an incredible story. You were obviously very, very well thought of yeah, my friends by from, your bosses. Yeah, my friends from Hong Kong. When I was in a coma in Manila, uh, they, they flew to Manila to support, support my wife. I didn't know that. You know? I, I, I was out of it. I don't know what drug they gave me when I was coming out of the coma, but I'd really like to get some more of that. <laughs> oh, that's one of the things. Yeah, when you're being treated in Singapore, because your immune system is so weak, they're going to get you. You're going to get ulcers. They tell you this. You are going to get ulcers in your mouth and throat. 
and you have to gargle with this disgusting stuff. One liquid four times a day, one liquid twice a day. And when you get the, the ulcers, which you do, in my case quite mild, they give you morphine. Unfortunately, they only give you one dose a day and they won't give you any more, but you know, it was quite nice. I had this morphine. It was 10 years last December. Uh, and every year I send Christmas cards to the doctors in Hong Kong and the doctor in Singapore. And usually it's a family portrait just to show them that I'm still alive. And a lot of people say I look very young for my age because I'm in my 70s now. Um, and I just say chemotherapy gives you great skin because what happens is all your skin dies. Uh, it happened a couple of months after I went back, a month after I went, I was discharged from the hospital and all the skin, there was like a, a line around my neck and all the skin below that turned grey and, and fell off. It was the last of the chemotherapy coming out of my system. Bang. Gives you great skin. And a friend of mine in... You wouldn't recommend that as a skin or a beauty I, I treatment would, I at would all. not. I've discussed this with women friends who've had breast cancer and been treated, and they agree, gives you great skin. But when your hair grows back, it grows back differently if you're a woman. In my case, I'm follically challenged, so it doesn't matter. But um, I had one lady, she worked with me in, in, in the UK, and she said that her hair used to be straight, and after her chemotherapy, it came back curly. Didn't, yeah. didn't know that could happen. Yeah. Chris, we are sitting here together, and I have to say, you do look the picture of health. Um, I feel it. You've got great colour in your cheeks. I mean, you look incredibly healthy. And I would never have guessed in a million years, you're, you're in your 70s. Absolutely not. Right. It's a miracle. It really is. I do blood tests every four months with a private haematologist here. Uh, and he looks at my results and just says, okay, go away. You know, we don't need to do anything. At the moment, I have a very high level of ferritin and they have extracted a half a litre of blood to bring it down. They think it's because of all the blood transplants I had. Because when you're going through this, you have blood transplants all the time. I must have had 30 blood transfusions in my time and loads of platelet transfusions all this sort of stuff going on I remember one time in Hong Kong I had an argument with the um, the virologist because they were giving me I'd had this lung infection which was what's caused put me to be seriously ill viral infection and they were giving me chemo and he said, okay, we're going to put you back on the antiviral drug. And I said, no, because the side effects were horrible. And he said, well, if you won't take it, um, I'll, I won't treat you anymore. And, I said, and we negotiated. We came to an agreement that if my platelet count went down below a certain level, then I'd take the drug. I never took the drug again. Never got the platelet count. Just scraped through every time. Yeah. So, um, you know, I hope that if people listen to this, if they've got, if they themselves are facing what I had to face or they have relatives who are doing it, that it helps. The last time I went into the hospital in Singapore, the complex where I was living had a shuttle bus to take you in. 
and he would take me in. And he said, you know, now you've got to use what has happened to you to help others, which is a very um, Christian and Buddhist thing. He was a Buddhist. And so that's why I decided to talk about this today. I honestly did not expect it to be so emotional um, because of all the, all the time that's elapsed. And the emotion, the emotion is gratitude. I'm so grateful to the doctors, the nurses, all my friends who uh, rallied around. You know, it's um. I had people when I was first diagnosed. People flew to Hong Kong to be tested to see if they were a match. I even had a Japanese friend living in Hong Kong who got himself tested, whereas the chances of different racial types being um, a match are almost zero. But he did it anyway. He's a Man City supporter, but never mind. <laughs> we won't hold that against him. No, we won't. I mean, you have told one of the most incredible stories, if not the most incredible story I've ever heard. You must be made of such strong stuff to physically go through what you went through with the treatments, the decisions you have to make. And for your family, your wife, you had young children. And it was a long period of time. It, it wasn't just... You know, a couple of weeks, this was a long period of time. Yeah, it was. And it takes a toll. You are just an incredible person because not only the physical side of thing, mentally. Mentally, the depression had several bouts of very bad depression um, after the treatment. Um, to the extent where there were a few times that I considered killing myself because um, I just felt that there was really nothing to live for, um, which is weird, isn't it? I've gone through all this treatment to stay alive, and now I start to feel that there's nothing, nothing worth living for. But I'm out of that. I realise, you know, I've been so very lucky um, to, to have survived all of this. My kids now... Adults off my payroll, working, nice kids. My wife did a great job bringing them up. And so, you know, that's, that's really it. The, to anybody who's listening to this, if you're going through it, it gets better. You, it's a horrible, it's probably one of the most horrible experiences you can ever go through. And a lot of people will choose not to. And I said to my wife after the sec, after I was, I was still in Singapore, but we knew that I was getting better and stronger and I was going to survive it. And I said to her, if it comes back, that's it. I'm not having this again. Because I didn't, you know, I, I knew I wouldn't survive it again. Um, and in fact, I had a friend, American, who contacted me 
who's a friend from Hong Kong and who's now living back in the States. And uh, he was diagnosed when he was about 73 and he decided to have treatment and the treatment killed him because it really is, is so aggressive, so aggressive. But he, he felt he had to try, so I miss him. I think we should dedicate this podcast to your wife. Yeah. Can we do that? Yes, we can. So what's your wife's name? Her name is Lynn. Her name is Lynn's, L-I-N-D-S. She's Filipina. And she is an amazing woman. And you are an amazing man. And I feel... I don't know how to describe privileged that you have agreed to tell this story. It's been emotional for both of us. And yes, let's dedicate this to Linz. And Chris, thank you for sharing your story. We will put a link to your blog and to other organisations and your contact details so people can contact you. I'd be happy to talk to anybody or communicate by email or WhatsApp or whatever. If anybody who listens to the, the podcast wants to do that, I'm always happy to do that. Chris, thank you. No, thank you.